Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Wednesday Conversation. I'm Bethany Gilbert and I'm here with Pastor Bob Thune of Quorumdale Church and Pastor Chris Hemmelman of First City Church. Every Wednesday we sit down to talk about how the gospel of Jesus Christ connects to the questions and issues of everyday life. Today is Third Wednesday Theology. We're in chapter 22 of Herman Bavink's The Wonderful Works of God and we're talking about sanctification. Pastor Chris Hellman, welcome back to the Wednesday Conversation. You know, you would think that I go on sabbatical often, as much <laughs> as I miss, but you know, with just, family out of town, sometimes you travel, you have other things going on. You always do it on a Wednesday. It is. Wednesdays always are my travel days, I guess. No Dusty White today. Dusty is out. Um, and we're talking about the wonderful works of God by Herman Bovink. By the way, no snacks today, but we have coffee. We have coffee provided by... Wednesday conversation listener, which Chris is less than thankful I'm, for. I'm glad you guys are enjoying it, but Chris is not a coffee drinker. It's delicious coffee. coffee. Smells really good. Yeah, it's it's uh, so Isaac from Iowa got us a couple bags of uh, what is it called? Trade coffee, which is like a um, a wholesaler or that's a online seller for a bunch of that sells you a bunch of like locally roasted different coffees. So you can go on there and sort of customize your choices. So this happens to be from. Anodyne Roasting Company in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Love Wisconsin. It is Brazil Fazenda Primavera. Ooh. Bethany, the tasting notes are raisin, caramel, and graham cracker. Ooh. Can you taste all of those notes? Uh, I mean, I'm I'm not that guy who <laughs> would not. Th- these things on this and coffee and wine, I'm always like, really? <laughs> yeah. Where do these people come from? I think people just make that stuff up. I think there are people who are super tasters who can like taste those notes, but I'm not one of them. I just, I just know. I oh, that I'm sounds pretty good. Either. Yeah, I like raisins. I like caramel, and I like. I just ask myself, do I like all those things? If so, I'll probably like this coffee. Mm-hmm. If there's a thing on there, I'm like, yeah, I don't like some of the tasting notes on some of these coffees are just rather weird. They're like, you know, they say things. And you're just like, yeah, I've never actually eaten that before, so I wouldn't know what that tastes like. You know, like orange zest or something like that. You're just Strange. Like, oh, I don't eat a lot of orange zest. So. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of super tasters, my wife can tell you if Coke is from a can, a bottle, from McDonald's, or other restaurants based oh, on the taste. I think I could do that, too. And she has done this. Can she tell if it's from, like, QT? Or is it all convenience stores are the same? Or is it just McDonald's basically like convenience? Different. Yeah, McDonald's is very distinct. Really? Mm-hmm. It's considered the best. Do they have, like, their own formulation, or why is that? I was. I think I read sometime they put it, it's the way that they store Coke. It's hmm. in, like, some specific kind of, like, metal container or whatever in their in their stores and it tastes different and it's better does she say better or worse she says she says mcdonald's, McDonald's coke is the best, is the best really? coke you can possibly have man makes me want to go have some yeah after i finish this <laughs> brazil fazenda primavera i'm gonna drive over to mcdonald's and get some coke you can taste the notes of <laughs> whatever <laughs> who, who knows Metal yeah. Storage. <laughs> who knows yeah well thanks uh isaac from iowa for the uh small batch coffee and we are enjoying it as we think about this large chapter in Herman Bovink's The Wonderful Works of God on sanctification. And when we do Third Wednesday Theology here, we aren't trying to be exhaustive and cover everything that Bovink says in the chapter, but we are trying to give you a summary and draw out some of the most helpful aspects of Bovink's work in each chapter. This topic is one of the important ones because it's a place where every Christian sort of feels the reality of what it means to live in the already not yet right? Sanctification is the journey that we're all on. And so whenever I read about sanctification, I'm all, I always find myself going, oh, so that's why that happens to me, or that's why I feel that way, or that's a helpful way of thinking about the 
the journey I am on. And obviously this is a place where there uh, are some debates within Christianity, uh, debates between Catholics and Protestants, debates between various um, branches of Protestantism, and a place where there's a lot of biblical material for us to understand. And so I want to start by reading Bovink's helpful distinction between justification and sanctification. Bovink is a careful theologian, and he tries to define clearly and distinguish clearly between these two. On page 456, he writes, In justification, we are declared free of guilt and punishment on the basis of a righteousness which is outside of us in Christ Jesus and which, through God's grace, is reckoned to us and on our own part is received in faith. So notice in his definition of justification, he's mentioning we are declared free of guilt and punishment. It's on the basis of a righteousness which is outside of us in Christ, and it is reckoned to us by God's grace and then received in faith. He goes on to write, In sanctification, however, the holiness of Christ is most certainly poured out in us through the Holy Spirit. Later on in this paragraph, he says, There is such a thing as Christ in us as well as Christ for us. So he sort of wants to say justification is Christ for us, Christ standing in our place by his righteousness, reckoning his righteousness to us. Sanctification is Christ in us, Christ actually coming to dwell in us and transform us and renew us in his image. Chris, what do you find helpful and think about the distinction? Yeah, making the distinction is important, as I'm assuming we'll get into some of the errors that we can fall into if we if we smash those two categories together. But Bavink also is careful to say, while these two things are distinct, they are connected. They always they're, come to us together. Yes, they're always the, the full benefits of Christ. Sanctification and justification are interrelated, and you cannot have one without the other. Yes. Across the page, <clears throat> he makes this distinction. The distinction must be made between the status in which a person stands and the condition in which he finds himself. These two are so far apart that an innocent person is sometimes accused and condemned, and a guilty person is sometimes acquitted by the judge. A person's status, therefore, does not yet change his condition, nor vice versa. So it's helpful to think that when we talk justification, we're talking about our status before God declared righteous. When we talk about sanctification, we're talking about the condition in which we find ourselves, the, the condition of being holy in Christ and then growing into, or as Bavink will call it later in the chapter, becoming what we are, growing up into the holiness that we actually have been given through Christ's um, spirit dwelling in us. Chris, I, anytime I'm reading a chapter, I'm like, oh, here's a debate that we have often. I want to jump into it. And so there's a little thing that Bavink does here in the early part of this chapter that gives me a little soapbox to yell about a heresy that's in our city that I'd like to yell about. Sweet, let's do it. Let's yell. <laughs> Omaha, in particular, has been plagued by a little movement really poorly called free grace. And the free grace people are people who say, hey, once you're justified, that's really all you need. Uh, there's no such thing as repentance. There's no such thing as growth in holiness. Just The, the point is believe in Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And so they, they have this perspective that if you say anything about repentance, if you say anything about ongoing growth and sanctification, if you say anything about the need to turn from sin after you've already come to faith in Christ, that you're adding works to faith, and that therefore, 
we are the ones who really believe in free grace. And you people who talk about repentance, you're a bunch of works-based, non-gospel-loving people. I don't know... Well, I have some thoughts on where this heresy comes from. But let me read how Bavik just is going to sort of put a nail in that coffin with one paragraph, okay? There have always been those, writes Bavink, who have regarded the forgiveness of sins as the one great benefit of Christ and who denied the inner renewal of men after the image of God or at least neglected it and left it unexplored. These hold that if a person is justified and is conscious of this in faith, nothing further needs to happen to him. They maintain that the consciousness of the forgiveness of sins already makes him a different person. In short, for such observers, justification and regeneration are two names for one and the same thing. Now, it is altogether true that the Christian who with a true faith believes that all his sins out of pure grace solely because of Christ have been forgiven does most certainly by this awareness become a different person. He feels himself acquitted of all guilt. He has, being justified by faith, found peace with God. He stands in the freedom which Christ has made him free. But if one goes on to infer from this that justification and regeneration are altogether the same thing, he is in error and is going absolutely counter to the testimony of Holy Scripture. After all, true saving faith, which accepts the righteousness of Christ, does not come up out of the natural man but is a fruit of regeneration and therefore already assumes a spiritual change which has taken place through the Holy Spirit. That's the kicker right there too. Go on. Regeneration, that is what produces faith and why faith and repentance are not a work because they start with the Holy Spirit regenerating us so that we can have faith and repentance. And so I think that's the, and I'm with you, Bob, I've since being in Omaha, <laughs> you've encountered a few of these. People. I've had an encountered with a few of these folks, and 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 I think the thing that strikes me is, and and I know they would never say this, and I, I want to be generous and careful, but at the same time, I want to say the thing that strikes me about that perspective is how humanistic it sounds. Like that, it, it is merely an intellectual act for me to believe in something, and that's all the further it goes versus the holistic view of salvation that scripture uh, gives us. Yes. So if you hear people talk about quote unquote free grace, they might mean two things. They might be good reformed people who just love the freedom of God's grace, but they also could be weird people who think that you only need to intellectually assent to the gospel and that you don't need to be sanctified or repent of your sin or turn from anything or anything of the such of that nature, in which case incorrect, wrong, give them a copy of Bavink. Yes. Tell them to read it. Yes. Um, sanctification, Bavink writes, so here's the thing he's trying to hold together. I guess I shouldn't say he's trying to because I don't know what he's trying to do. I just have the words in front of me that he's written. He's not here to tell me what his intent was in writing these words. But Bavink wants to say that sanctification is by grace and by faith, that um, faith is the operative instrument in sanctification. And and as Chris, as Chris has already said, that Sanctification is ours because Christ is ours. And so Christ sets us apart, makes us holy like he is. And also, at the same time, sanctification involves our active involvement and partnership and engagement. Um, The way Bavink says it is, sanctification is a work of God, but it is intended to be a work in which the believers themselves are also active in the power of God. God effects sanctification in us 
by means of us ourselves. He does not annihilate our personality, but lifts it up. He does not kill our reason, our will, and our desires, but rather quickens them inasmuch as they were dead and puts them to work. He makes us his allies and co-laborers. So I think that those, those are the important things to hold together, the fact that this is a work of God's grace, but the means by which God does it involves our active participation and engagement. Would you say that this is sort of the, the center struggle when, in this discussion of sanctification, of understanding how God's power is at work versus our own effort? I mean, because you, you, you mentioned one error with free grace, but within this, um, more specifically, the sanctification piece, you have, I have heard and have had conversations with plenty of people on one side that would say, you know, it's all of grace. It's kind of this let go, let God sort of thing. Right. And on the other side, you you see people who very, very much want to live holy lives and they sort of approach it with this, well, I have got to put forth all of this effort. And so you kind of have these two ditches that it seems like a lot of Christians can fall into. This seems to be the conversation um, that, that I have most regularly on this topic. Yes. And this is why, this in my opinion, is why Reformed theology matters. It's why people need to read Calvin and Bovink and other thoughtful writers on the topic of sanctification because they help us take all of the biblical material, understand it all in light of grace and hold it all together and help us avoid those sort of simple dichotomies of it must either be God or me. I mean, because, you know, this is you can have this same conversation about salvation in general, right? Am I, you know, is is uh, is God's grace in my life? Does God work such that I am not active? No, God works in a way that brings my capacities to life. Though I was dead in sin, right? I yeah. now come alive, and so my faith in Christ is my faith, but it is a gift of God's grace. And how can I speak of faith both as something that's mine? And is something that's a gift. Well, because that's how the scriptures speak of it. And that's what it means to be dead in sin, alive to God in Christ Jesus. Chris Bovink, he talks a lot about the law in this chapter. And I think that's his way of getting into the conversation you were just having. Of There are people who, out of a real desire to grow in holiness and obedience, sort of use the law on themselves, right? Or they, they read God's commands in the scripture and they say, well, I need to do these things. And so there's a sense in which they sort of burden themselves with a with a right desire for obedience, but in a way that sort of takes the law on as this burden and this obligation and this thing I'm supposed to pursue and fulfill and do. And Boving wants to say, yes, the law is still the rule of life for Christians, but when the New Testament uh, exhorts us to obedience, it doesn't do so. He says it, it the gospel never derives the exhortations to holiness from the terrors of the law, but rather from the high calling to which believers in Christ yeah, are That's a great line. Yeah, the, the place of motivation and, and how we understand um, from what, what status, what place are we actually living out the Christian life? It's not this place of, I'm in fear of judgment, I have to earn. Rather, it's because of what Christ has done, because I am now in Christ, I have the spirit, I've been regenerated, I have the power of God at work in me, I'm now, and, and er, going early, even earlier to the beginning of the chapter, where he talks about being holy and set apart. All of those great, wonderful blessings in Christ, it's from that place now that I live. He also brings this up uh, several times where he says that the law is fulfilled not by those who walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And so this sense that how we keep the law is faith, it is 
trusting in Christ. It is living from that place of dependence upon the spirit. And so there is this sense in which the law is important. The law matters. The law shapes the Christian life. But how we live that, it's by the spirit. It's by faith. It's by dependence, um, by the power of God. And so the challenge is, is when people start just want to throw the law out because they think, well, the law is just um, there to point us to uh, our sin and so that we repent. Uh, and this is, I think, sometimes in the way that Lutherans can at times handle justification and sanctification, this can kind of come out where the law has really no directive or proactive uh, place in the Christian life. Where yeah, the law gospel distinction is so firm that yes. the, the law is no, has no meaning for us now yeah, that we're yeah. gener- regenerate by faith. And Bob, I think, just does a really good job of saying, no, slow that roll. It's just our, our relationship to the law and how we're oriented to it and how we understand living it out that has changed. And that, when we can be clear on that, I think, uh, one, it's, it's helpful because it's clarifying, but two, it, I think there's an encouragement behind it. Cause it's one, it says, Hey, by the power of God. And yeah, you'll struggle for the rest of you know, your life as Bobbing points out, but there is an encouragement of like, you can walk in righteousness and there is growth to be, to be had and that the law is good and you delight in it and you love it. And so there's a lot of encouragement. I think when you get the clarity even if you don't always maintain the clarity, but fighting for that is good. Right, Balvink mentions that in the in the classic Reformed confessions, there's this. Um, they they tend to use the Ten Commandments as a way of drawing out um, moral teaching and explaining the virtues. And so, in the Heidelberg Catechism and the Westminster Confession of Faith, in the Canons of Dort, and all these sort of uh, catechisms and confessions that were written for the life of the Church, you see an emphasis on. Uh, where, where do we learn Christian ethics? Where do we learn the life we ought to live? Well, we learn it from the Ten Commandments primarily. And so there's all these explications of the Ten Commandments. And Bovink rightly points out, and this is an important conversation for some modern debates that are alive right now, that the Ten Commandments are merely a further expression of the natural law that's present in, in every one of our conscience. We inherently know that we are living in a moral universe and that there are things that are good for us to do and things that are not good for us to do. As Calvin wrote, uh, we need the spectacles of Scripture to bring all that into clear focus, and so that's what the Ten Commandments do. And uh, so there's a section in here where he just sort of walks through how we relate to particularly God's commandments in light of the gospel. But let's get to the end, or the, or the latter half of the chapter, Chris, where he really gets into what I think all of us feel, which is the struggle of sanctification, right? Uh, page 472. Sanctification is to be distinguished from justification. Justification consists of a divine acquittal, which is at once completed. True, it is repeatedly applied to the conscience, but it is not developed and increased. That's a really key point. What he's saying is your justification happens once for all. Now, it might need to be repeatedly applied to the conscience. There's ways where you can doubt, you know, am I really justified? And so you got to go back to, no, God has forgiven me in Christ by faith, right? So that's what he means is it's done. It's once it, it's one and done. Christ is, has forgiven your sin. It may need to be applied again and again by faith, but it's not, it doesn't increase over time. The life of sanctification, however, is bound to the law of development. It has its point of origin in regeneration. It requires nourishment in order to grow strong, and it reaches its apex only when it will be fully revealed with Christ. So this is what theologians call progressive sanctification. What he's saying is, hey, this begins at regeneration. It's going to grow throughout your life. The ultimate vision is when we are renewed in the new heavens and the new earth, it will be complete. He says on page 474, the life of the Christian is not a quiet growth, 
but a continuous struggle. Hopefully you can relate to that. I can relate to that. He goes immediately from there to talk about, A, in unregenerate people, there's also a struggle there, but it's not a spiritual struggle. This is fascinating. He says, unregenerate people still have this sense that there's a disconnect between the person they are and the person that they wish they were. And so they have this sense of struggle as well. But he says, um, the struggle is a rational struggle, a conflict between human conscience on the one hand and will and desire on the other. So he's saying non, every non-Christian can relate to the fact that, that I'm not the person I want to be or there's some part of my life that, I, that looks uglier than I wish it did. But he says that in an unregenerate person, that struggle is basically a struggle between conscience and desire. And what's different in a Christian is that struggle is between the old and new man. It's not between reason and passion. It's not between you know one part of me and another part of me. It's between the old man and the new man. And Bovink points out that these two forces, as he calls them, spread themselves out over the whole man and over all his powers and abilities. And so this is really helpful for modern Christians because sometimes we tend to talk about the struggle as a struggle between two parts of ourselves. Like, you know, my, and do I follow my heart or do I follow my head? You know, um, do I, you know, is the problem in my will or is the problem in just my ability to sort of trust in God? Um, he says, this is not a battle between two faculties or two parts of man as it would be if it were conducted by the head against the heart, by the reason against the passions, or by the soul against the body. Rather, in one and the same reason of one and the same person, there's a battle going on between faith and unbelief between truth and falsehood. In one and the same heart, there's an opposition between pure drives and desires and impure ones. In one and the same will, an evil lust opposes a good one, and an evil disposition takes issue with a pure one. The struggle is in very fact a struggle between two beings in one and the same being. That's a really complicated way of saying it, I think, but interesting that he takes it that approach. Yeah, I liked I liked this section, and something clicked for me. When I was reading that, something that immediately jumped to my mind was remembering teaching American literature and talking about Ben Franklin and how Ben Franklin had this method where he would try to moral improvement. And it was all framed around this reason over desire. Mm. Like if I use my ration, and this is such a, he's such a product of the enlightenment. My rationality rules my desires and my, my passions or my appetites. And if I could become more rational, then I'm going to become more moral in many ways. And Bavink does this wonderful job of saying that is entirely secular. That is, that is the unregenerate man begins to frame it out that way. But unfortunately, like you just pointed out, I think sometimes we've adopted some of that mindset in the church rather than seeing it's a holistic. And I think if we, if we keep that kind of enlightenment mindset, I think we neglect the, the holistic growth that we need. And so I think like you say, yeah, it is a bit of a complicated way to put it, but he, he touches on something so important because if we don't get this, I think in a lot of ways, our sanctification, our growth is going to be stunted. The way he seems to describe the vision of sanctification is that if my whole being were really taken over by communion with Christ, if in every facet of my being, I were fully in love with and following and obeying Christ, that that would be then sort of full sanctification. The way he says it is, if the truth of God 
had completely taken over and conquered the consciousness of the believer, there would be no room left for error and falsehood. If the love of God had wholly filled the heart, there would be no room for hatred, envy, wrath, and the like. But, as everyone knows from his experience, this is not the case. And the scripture testifies that we cannot look forward to such a perfect condition in this life. The struggle will remain. Um, so that it's kind of helpful to give a vision of what I'm after is just for the love of God to more and more dominate my being, for the truth of God to more and more fill my mind, that, that this a whole life given over to Christ is kind of the vision. So towards the end, he gets into the notion of the perseverance of the saints. Is our sanctification something that is going to carry out to the end, or could we could we actually lose our salvation, lose uh, a sense of being in the grace of God? And again, this is another debate that I'm sure you have had conversations with people. I know I have had, certainly had a lot of conversations about this topic uh, over the years of uh, being a Christian. But I think what Boving does so well here again is he he kind of takes the biblical data and the tensions and begins to try to weave this picture of though scripture speaks of and gives examples of people who quote unquote fall away from the faith. He, he wants to balance that with the holistic picture. One that scripture makes clear that, yeah, there are going to be some people who claim to be part of the church that ultimately weren't. And two, there are pictures of people who have fallen even to great lengths, Peter and David to show the grace of God and the kindness of God to restore people. But ultimately what he wants to do is show that in spite of the struggle, in spite of the difficulties that Christian truly uh, regenerate people will face, that ultimately we'll, we will preserve because, going all the way back to the beginning, sanctification is first and foremost a work of God from the beginning to the end. And he, he gets, there's a couple times where he gets a little feisty and essentially says, hey, if you deny the perseverance of the saints, you essentially make salvation a work of man. Yeah. And, and really wants to press that point hard to say, you, you remove the power of God from the equation if you believe that ultimately we can lose our faith. So I, I, I appreciate it when he, you know, in his ba- very Bavinkian way of getting a little polemical, but he, but he does press on that issue. I like two things about that section. <clears throat> One is he says the Roman Catholic Church finds this, finds that this sort of, you know, lack of assurance of salvation makes for a profitable anxiety. I thought that was a nice phrase. Yeah. <laughs> nice phrase. This makes for a profitable anxiety it's in the Roman business. Catholic Church. Yeah. Good business. Um, because he he's drawing out the fact here that in the Roman Catholic tradition, assurance of salvation depends on the assurance the church gives and that a priest gives. And so that makes the church very central to anybody's possession of any kind of confidence in salvation. And so he says, well, that, that works really well for a church when it puts itself at the center. What Bavink is seeking to do here is to put Christ at the center and to put the work of the Spirit in the life of the individual believer at the center. And what uh, the second thing I like that he does here, Chris, is to distinguish between perseverance of the saints or preservation, as he calls it, and assurance of salvation. So mm-hmm. he says preservation is a work of God. God is going to preserve his people. Our sense of assurance sort of waxes and wanes. And the, all the Reformed confessions say this as well, that, that our assurance can sort of strengthen and weaken as we go throughout life. You know, Do I feel really sure today that I belong to Christ? Well, some days yes, some days no, right? 
But what he says is, as if the preservation of the saint is a work of God, then it follows that in time, in the consciousness of these believers, a firm assurance of this reality also develops. So assurance of salvation is based on the fact of preservation. I can only be sure of my salvation if I know that God actually is keeping me. And also, though, that that assurance, as we read scripture and as the Spirit works out in our lives— there's a lot of subjective factors that strengthen yeah. that sense of assurance. Yeah. And and admittedly, this is a, a tough topic because I'm sure we all know people and people we've been close to that have had the appearance of being genuine believers. And then at some point in their life, they walk away from the faith. And what do you do with that? What How, how do you make sense of, of that experience? And I don't, th- I mean, I think scripture gives us, uh, answers in some sense, it can give us categories, but it doesn't eliminate the tension and the difficulty. Um, because you can go different ways. You can say, well, they weren't ever actually, they went out from among us because they were never part of us. First John, or you can say maybe their story is not done and they're going to be like Peter or David and going to be restored at some point. So scripture doesn't shy away from the tensions, but what Bavink, again, what Bavink does a good job of is, Hey, if you, if you look at all of the biblical data, what is scripture saying? And if you start from this central truth that sanctification, justification and sanctification are first and foremost a work of God completed by God, then the only conclusion you can come to is, in fact, for those who truly are in Christ, there will be preservation. And that should give us hope and strength in the waxing and waning. I think that's that's the thing that it's not just necessarily an intellectual theological debate, but it's when my when my assurance is weak, when I'm when I'm feeling beat up by sin, what do I do? Where do I go? How do I not lose all hope and despair and just kind of fall or, or get into this place where I'm just kind of grinding it out. Like I'm trying, I got to work for God. I got to get God to like me. I've got to feel better about myself. You know, if you, if you see sanctification as first and foremost, and work of God, then that's going to hopefully throw you on the grace of God rather than trying to do things on your own. My most insightful observation from this chapter was Page 43, the word which God gave us is in fact the chief means for our sanctification. The blessing which has accrued not only to the public preaching, but also to the reading, study, and meditation of that word has been immeasurable for the nurture of a Christian life. To this word as a means of sanctification, there's added prayer in Jesus' name which gives us access to the divine majesty and fills us with confidence since there is no one in heaven nor on earth who loves us more than Jesus Christ. I underlined that. It's just a good line. Yeah. There's no one in heaven or on earth who loves us more than Jesus Christ. But the, the, the fact that because sanctification is by faith and because faith has to have something to grab hold of, faith has to know what God has done for us in Christ. And where do we know that? Where do we find that? We find it in the word. And so for Boving to say the, the word of God is the chief means for our sanctification, we have to, if we want to grow in Christ-likeness, if we want to grow up into holiness, we have to be people of the word. We have to know the word of God. We have to dwell in the word of God. We have to grab hold of the promises of God by faith, and we find those in the scriptures. And so I just love that he's drawing our attention not just to Christ and communion with Christ, but also showing us that the means of that communion with Christ is through his word and through his promises. And this is why, as Christians, we ought to love the Bible, 
We ought to read the Bible. We ought to want to hear the Bible preached and taught. We ought to want to read books about the Bible, like this one from Bavink. We, we just ought to want to saturate our minds and hearts with the Word of God, because that's the chief agent or means by which the Spirit of God sanctifies us and grows us up in Christ. One of my favorite quotes in the chapter, page 44 and 45. Because sanctification, like the whole of salvation, is the work of God, we are admonished, obliged to a new obedience, and we are also qualified for it. He grants abundant grace, not that we should instantly or suddenly be holy and continue to rest in this holiness, but that we should persevere in the struggle and remain standing. He hears our prayers, but does it in accordance with the law and order which he has fixed for the spiritual life. Hence, we are always of good courage, for he who has begun a good work in us will finish it until the day of Christ Jesus. The believers can and they will become holy because in Christ they are holy. The struggle, but also the hope that we have in the midst of that struggle. That's a good place for us to end. Hence, we are always of good courage. So let us hope in Christ even as we walk in that struggle of sanctification. The goal of this podcast is to equip our own church for discipleship and mission. So if you're a Christian or a church leader in another context, we thank you for listening in and we pray that this conversation might be helpful to you as you minister in your context. We always love to hear from listeners. So if you have thoughts, questions, or future podcast topics, send an email to podcast at cdomaha.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next Wednesday for another episode of the Wednesday Conversation. Oh, oh, oh.